Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, I think it was about, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago or so, I was meeting with a high school student in the high school ministry that I was leading at the time, and he said something to me I'll, I'll never forget. Um, the, the student, his, his parents were key leaders in our church, and uh, while they were pursuing Jesus, his life was headed the opposite direction. And we were meeting for lunch on this particular day, um, and we had been meeting for a while, but we were meeting that day because I, I just wanted to, to understand more where he was at. And I, I honestly can't remember what sparked the question. It was maybe frustration on my part, a little bit of anger. But I remember looking at him at some point as he was starting to dabble in like other religious worldviews, smoking weed, like other things, just looking at him and going, all right, if you've got like some new knowledge, if you've read some books and now you got some new thoughts on life and like you're done with the church, why do you keep showing up? Like you keep showing up every Wednesday and Sunday and in your connection group, like why are you still there? I'll never forget his answers. All of a sudden, got real quiet at the table. He looked up at me, he looked right in my eyes, and he said, I cannot deny the work of God in my parents' lives. I cannot deny the work of God in my parents' lives. I don't know, like, what ambitions you had for life, like, five minutes ago, but you've now got a new one. Like, take that, throw that away. You've got a new one, Right? I'm not just talking to parents. I'm talking to everybody here. Like here was a young man who wanted to close the door on Jesus and be absolutely done with him, but couldn't. Why? It wasn't because the music at the church was so good. It wasn't because the depth of community that he had at church was so good. It wasn't because somebody had won him with a theological argument. It was purely the undeniable work of God in his parents' lives. That was the barrier that was keeping him from rejecting Jesus altogether. We forget this, but our lives are incredibly powerful. And if what we saw at the end of Titus chapter one was that the way that we live life has the power to ruin lives. What we see in Titus 2, in the first part of Titus 2 here, is that the way that we live actually has the power to save lives. And so last week, Stephen got us started walking through the first five verses of Titus 2, where in those verses, Paul begins like speaking to different like age, stage, gender, life groups, and giving them like instructions, very specific things. And if you're a list person, you love Titus too, because he just gives you the checklist of like, hey, older men, these should be the gospel fruits that mark your life. Older women, these gospel fruits should mark your life. Young women, these gospel fruits should mark your life. That was last week. Now this week, Paul continues to his list, but what he's gonna talk to now is to the young men, to leaders, church leaders, and to employees. And so we're gonna pick up in verse six. If you're with me, pull out your Bibles. Look at Titus two, verse six, as he says this to young men. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Okay, here's what I want you to do. You've got your Bibles out. 
Glance up real quick into last week's verses, Titus 2, verse 1 through 5, and notice something real simple with me. All right, older men, notice how many like gospel fruits are given that should mark the lives of older men. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love, and endurance. Six things, six gospel fruits that should mark an older man's life. Now let's go to older women. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking, and they're to teach what is good. There's four things, right? They're to encourage young women. Young women, how many gospel fruits are listed for you? To love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers in the home, kind, and in submission to their husbands. Seven things for young women. Now note this, in the same way, encourage young men to be self-controlled in everything. One thing. Young men, you get one thing. Why? Probably because if you got more than one thing, you'd forget it. Moms of young men, am I right? Am I here? No, but I, I actually think more seriously, though, uh, I think the point he's trying to make is that this is the foundational building block for a godly man. If your desire is to be a godly man, it starts and ends with self-control. This is it. This is it. I remember a few years back, I was meeting with a college student. His name was Josh. This was actually when I was still doing ministry at Iowa State University. And so I still remember sitting in the Memorial Union because I can remember that stale like smell of Subway, like that bread that just like it reeked into my clothes. I had to throw all my clothes away when I got done with ministry in Ames because of that Subway. Um, I remember I was meeting with Josh that, that morning and it's so cool because I still know Josh this day, like, like his life is just marked by the grace of God. And I remember he sat down with me, he's a new believer, he's like 19, 20 years old, and he looked at me and he asked me a very sincere question. He says, how do I become a man? It's like 6.30 in the morning. That's just the first words out of his mouth when he sat down at the table. Hey, how do we become a man? I knew Josh's story. Josh didn't have a father figure, never known his dad, had just come to know Christ, wasn't born in a Christian family. He had no idea what it looked like to be a godly man. Had ambitions of maybe someday getting married, having a family, leading a life that would represent Christ well. He's like, I am clueless. And I took him here, Titus 2.6. Read this simple verse, and I just started to look at Josh, and I said, hey, can I just ask you some simple questions? What time do you wake up in the morning? What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Do you fix your eyes on Jesus? What's the pattern of your life? Are you continually saying no to sin and yes to Jesus? Did you brush your teeth today? Did you take a shower? Are you going to work out sometime later today? What did you eat? Like, I do believe that, like, what happens with us physically affects what happens with us spiritually. You know, are you, are you putting your best effort into classwork? When you, when you go to work, are you working hard? Like, like, is what you're doing like worship to Jesus and how you work and go about life? Are you spending your time building up others? Or are you spending your time indulging yourself? I just started walking through these questions. Right, because what Paul is saying here 
when he says, encourage men to be self-controlled, that, that word there of self-controlled, some of your Bibles maybe use the word sensible or uh, sober-minded or something like that. But what self-controlled means, what to be sensible means, that you can stand at the point that you're at and you can look down the road of a particular action and you can see where it leads. You can stand at this point and go, if I continue to eat this, if I continue to spend five hours a day on my cell phone, if I continue to neglect my Bible and prayer, if I continue to feed that sin in my life, I know where that leads. A sensible person, a self-controlled person is able to stop in that moment, look down that road and decide then and there, am I gonna go down that road or not? That's what it means to be self-controlled, Josh. Kendale Church, that's what it means to be self-controlled, sensible, sober-minded. It's the ability to know the good that God wants you to do and to do it. And equally to know what is evil, what is wrong, what is a waste of life to look down that road and go, I'm not going down that road. I'm not doing that anymore. Laying down a boundary in life and continuing on, regardless of what your internal impulses are or what the world around you is enticing you to do. This command for young Christian men to be self-controlled, it assumes two things. Number one, it assumes that there's something within us that needs to be controlled. And it assumes that God has given us the means by which we can control it. Here's why self-control matters so much. And this isn't just true for young men. You can see in the descriptions up in verses one through five, like this same attribute is to be true for older men and younger women, things like that but I do wanna speak specifically to young men. Here's why self-control matters so much for young men. It's because God has infused you as a young man with unmatched, unparalleled passion, energy, and strength. And the question is, the million dollar question is, are you gonna use it for good or for evil? Like as I'm raising up three boys that are pursuing and moving toward manhood, I feel like I'm raising up like bull riders, like, like young men that are strapped to something that is beyond them in passion, energy, zeal. They wanna change the world. They wanna do something significant with their lives. And the key question of their life is, can they control it? Can they stay on that bull and ride it out? That is the key question. Because God, even though he's given us a new heart, we gotta understand that there is still sin poison coursing through our veins. And so even as a young man, if you submit your life to Christ, you're given a new heart, but there's still something within you that needs to be controlled. And God has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit, which one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. God has given you, young man, self-control, giving you the spirit by which you can take that within you and you can make it submissive to Christ. And if you do that, if God can do that with a young man, there is nothing more powerful in the world. All of human history shows how the world has been changed through young people that are under the lordship of Christ. Nothing more powerful when God gets a hold of that passion, that zeal that sits within a young man. And there is at the same time nothing more tragic than watching a young man with no self-control, like a ship without a rudder, destined for destruction. Self-control makes all the difference. 
makes all the difference. Some of you in the room may be asking this really important question. You may be going, am I a young man or an older man? I won't point you out which ones are which, and I'm not gonna start calling you out and saying that you're old or this person's young. I won't do that. I'm gonna let you to figure this one out. Because if you're sitting there this morning going, am I an older man or a younger man? I would actually answer your question with a question. Are you self-controlled or not? Because if we're honest, there's a lot of dudes walking around that, yeah, you may have the age of an older man. You may have the job and responsibilities of an older man. You may have the money and the stuff and the look of an older man. But you're a 40-year-old child. If your life is uncontrolled, and what I mean is that your life is defined by like you are a slave to your impulses and hungers and what you eat, drink, and what comes out of your mouth and what you do with your money. If your emotions like fear, anger, and love dictate your actions, or if you continue to exhaust your God-given talents and time on things that don't matter, though you know better, or if your appetite for sexual pleasure is like a wildfire, and it drives what you look at, what you find is beautiful, and who and where you spend your time, if all of those things are true, you are uncontrolled in those things. And if you continue to know the good that God wants you to do and refuse to put that thing to death by the power of the Spirit, then know this. You're a child, not even a young man. Fellas, whether you're 12 or 52, if this word, self-control, does not define you and you want to be a man of God, know that it starts and ends here for you. Are you self-controlled? Paul then moves to his next crowd. Now he's not so much focusing on young man. He actually speaks to Titus himself. He wants Titus to be a model for young men to follow in. But this is what he says to Titus. And I'm going to broaden this out to church leaders. He says this to Titus. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Make yourself an example, Titus of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Those two words, integrity, integrity and dignity in his teaching, actually have very little to do with the words that come out of Titus's mouth. It has more to do with how he does life than really what he's saying. Integrity, that, that word is speaking to this inner soundness. That's a key word, like this inner soundness to Titus's life, that when people would look at him, they could see his integrity, they could see the purity of his motives. And so Paul says first, like, let your life be marked by integrity, but he also wants it to be marked by dignity, right? That people, they can look at you and your outward appearance and how you go about your work 
Titus and how you labor for the church, that there would be a seriousness to it, an outward observable seriousness. So two key words there, not just integrity and dignity, but soundness and seriousness are to mark your work, Titus. Why are these two things so important? And it's not just like important contextually there, it's important all the time, but it is important contextually there because remember the situation in Crete is that these people were used to seeing people come in and announce themselves as spiritual leaders among them that would come into their life and, and want to prop themselves up as some type of spiritual leader. And yet what they had seen is those people were there to lie, to steal, to, to gain money and to ruin entire households. And the skeptics looking in at Titus, I'm sure they were there, were asking, well, is he like one of them or not? And Paul is telling Titus, make sure they know that you're not like them by your integrity and your dignity because you've got critics and I don't want you to give them any ammo. But it's not just that Titus's life was surrounded by critics. He also had, you see the word there in this text, he also had some opponents, people who were wanting him to fail, people that were looking at his life for that moment, just like wanting that, that opportunity where he could jump in and pounce on him rip him apart, point out his flaws. It's a sad world, the Crete world. It's a sad world that we live in, in general, broken by sin. Jesus promised, hey, I had critics, I had opponents, so will you. Titus had them, we have them. This is one of the greatest weights and realities of church leadership. And it's not in here. Like, guys, I love our church family and the posture of our people. Like, this is an honoring environment that is so easy to serve and to lead. I'm talking about what's happening out there. Like, we live in a narcissistic culture that has become incredibly good at pointing out the flaws in others and really poor at spotting our own. That's the world that we live in. Critical, prideful, unforgiving. The world's really actually always kind of been like that. It's a dangerous time to step into any form of leadership, but especially spiritual leadership. But I don't want to speak like, I'm not talking like just as a pastor, like to myself here, to the other pastors of the church. I actually want to speak because there's a number of people in this room that are serving as connection group leaders, discipleship group leaders, serve team leaders, just disciple makers in our church. I wanna just speak a word to you of encouragement here. If you're in leadership right now, or if there's anybody in here that aspires to be into those spots of leadership, know that when you step into that spot of leadership, you gotta make two commitments to the Lord. The two commitments are simply this integrity and dignity. You have to make a commitment first to integrity, to an inner soundness, that your life will be marked by authenticity. I say this all the time. If you want to be a leader, you have to be the first to confess and the first to do something about it. Good, godly church leadership should be marked by a quick vulnerability, transparency, confession of sin and repentance need to be marked by integrity that is marked by 
characteristic of authenticity, but also marked by a purity of motive. If you step into leadership and make that commitment, I don't want anything of this for myself. I am here for the glory of Christ and for the good of others. That's the inner soundness you need to commit to if you're gonna step into leadership. But also, there needs to be a dignity about which you go about your work, a seriousness that is observable to the world around you. If you wanna be in leadership, this needs to be clear that you, this is a phrase we use around here, we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we take Jesus very seriously. Can people see that in your leadership? Can they see that you work hard and you're incredibly diligent for the good of other people? Because the reality is, as a leader, you've got to know when you step into that role, everything you do will be B plus at best. Perfection is impossible. And the world will likely not grill you for being imperfect. But there are two things that the world will be looking at in our lives and two things we should be expecting of ourselves. Integrity and dignity. And if you want to step into a role of leadership, those two things need to mark your lives. If you're in leadership right now, do those words mark your lives? Have you confessed sin? Are you hiding sin? Are you in this for some weird gain for yourself or like the reputation for yourself? Are you there for the good of other people? You're there to lay your life down like Christ laid his life down for the good of everyone. Are you serious about the work? Do you work hard at it? Do you give your absolute best in it? This is what Paul desired for leaders. This is what he called for in Titus's life. And his desire was that Titus then would be a model for young men who are growing in their self-control to follow in his footsteps. I pray that we'll do the same. But now to our last group. He says this in verse 9 and 10 then, slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. I said this before when we opened up the book of Titus together. You go back to week one when we were looking at Titus 1, verse 1. Uh, Paul used the word in that uh, opening there of he called himself a servant. And I don't know if you remember this at the time. I said probably the most accurate translation of that word servant is bond servant. It's someone who is so indebted to somebody else that they actually sell themselves in service to that person to pay back their debt. Bond servant. Uh, I, I bring that up because when I look at the word slave, I think the most accurate picture you can have in your mind is that same word, bond servant, not slave so much, at least for us. Like what comes to our mind when we think about slavery, the Bible condemns so clearly over and over again. And so I don't want you to read this text and get confused that God is in some way like affirming slavery. That's not true. Like, just let me go on a little bit of a rabbit trail. If you want to like write down these Bible verses, like later, this is important stuff. Um, guys, most of what comes to our mind when we think about slavery, God condemns over and over again in the Bible. Uh, you could go to Exodus 21, 16, God condemns man-stealing. Exodus 21, 16, God condemns abuse of slaves. Exodus 21, 26 through 27, and God 
condemns placing liberated slaves back into slavery. That's Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 16. So most of what comes to our mind when we see the word slaves, God absolutely hates and abhors. Okay? So this is not an affirmation of what comes to our mind when we think about slavery. We gotta go back into the context of what did this look like in their world? And probably for us, like, the best like comparison of like moving from their town into our town, from their world into our world, taking a timeless principle and moving it over here. Probably the most common like way you could lay these things side by side is like bond servants and employees. Essentially, anybody who had a master back in those days, which would transcend gender groupings and age groupings and all that, and just like for us, now this broadens out a bit, not just talking about men or women or young men or old or whatever. Now we're talking across the whole spectrum, anybody who has a boss. So anybody in the room who has a boss this morning, these words are for you, okay? Here's what he's asking. If you have a boss, can I just ask you, what is your reputation at work? Like when your name comes up in conversation and your boss is in that conversation, what words, descriptive words, come to your boss's mind when they think about you? Look back into the text with me here, guys. There's a very simple call in this text for what we're supposed to be like as Christian employees. And here's what he says. Unless your supervisor is asking you to do something that conflicts with the commands of Christ, you are to submit to them in everything. I'll let that hang in the room for a bit. Right? We bristle under that word. Submit to them and everything? Everything, you know, like submission? Oh, I don't want to take the sting off it. Submit to them and everything. Unless what they're commanding you to do conflicts with the commands of Christ, submit to them and everything. Because understand this. Please hear me on this. This is like, like a really important truth for you as an employee to understand. God cares more about his reputation than what causes you to bristle in that moment. You hear me on that? God cares more about his reputation than what causes you to bristle in that moment. This text is very simple, what it's calling us to, to submit to them and everything. And here's the four attributes that God desires of Christian employees. Pretty straightforward. That the words that come to your boss's mind when they think about you is that you are well-pleasing, that you bring full satisfaction to them, that you don't talk back, you don't steal, and that you're faithful in everything that you're given. Sometimes the Bible's hard to understand. This one, not so much, right? Are those the words that come to your boss's mind when they think about you? When it comes to our jobs, it's important for us to find our why. I'm a big Simon Sinek fan. Have you guys seen the TED Talk or read the book, right? You gotta find your why. That's a big language now. 
uh, in schooling is you got to find your why. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Why do you wake up? Why do you get excited about your job? Why do you, why do you go in and give your absolute best? You got to find your why. When it comes to your job, I do believe it. You need to find your why. Most often in our world, if I ask somebody like, why do you love your job? Like, why do you give yourself fully to it? The most popular answer you're going to hear from somebody is they go, man, it's, it's, it's my it's my identity. It's where I find my status. It's, it's, it's who I am. It's, it's where I get to, to exert myself. Like this is a person that essentially when they reveal in their answer is this, that their job is their God. Most popular answer you probably get is that for people, their job is their God. Or the other answer that you might get if you ask somebody like, why do you get up in the morning? Why do you go to work? You're going to hear not so much, well, my job is my God. It's my identity. It's, it's, it's my source of just like knowing who I am. They go the other side. They're like, it's just a means for an end, man. I'm just trying to put food on the table. Those are probably the two most popular answers you'll get in this age. If you go, hey, why do you work? People say, it's who I am. My job is my God. Or I'm just trying to put food on the table. My job is a means to an end. What Jesus is calling you to is just something else. It's actually view your job not as God and not as a means to an end, but your job as worship. To view your job as worship. Colossians 3 says this, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Doesn't matter who your supervisor is, and yes, you're called to submit to them. You ultimately serve the Lord Christ. What if the workplace that you're in isn't some accident? Like, what if the workplace that you're in isn't meant to be the place where you find like your identity and like who you are? And what if the place that you work like isn't isn't just simply some means to an end of like this is how I put food on the table? Like, what if God in His infinite wisdom placed you in that job? Possibly one reason to sanctify you, but to put you into an environment around people that will probably never walk into a church on their own but for them to see Jesus in you. What if that was his sovereign plan? What if God's sovereign plan was that you would work among these people and that they would see your life and they would hear you proclaim Christ as you go about your work and they would sit there and go, I don't want any of this, but yet at the same time, I cannot deny the work of God in their lives. This is the goal. See it in verse 10. So that they may adorn. You may make somehow to take the teaching of Christ, the message of Jesus, and, and make it even more beautiful. That you may adorn the teaching of Christ. That's the goal. Church, understand this. Paul is not hiding this fact at all. The world is watching you. Three times in this text, he follows up these, these like checklists of gospel fruits with so that statements. He's calling for us to be marked by these gospel fruits so that it will cause something. Here's the three so that. 
The first one's in verse 5. So that the word of God will not be slandered. The next one, verse 8. So that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. And the last one, verse 10, so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. He wants our lives to do something that it would push people to Christ. It would pull people to Christ. It would drag people to Christ. It would keep people from running from Christ. Your life is to do something. So if you love Jesus, you should be self-controlled like Jesus. You should lead like Jesus, you should work like Jesus. One of the most confusing and damaging things that we can do for the outside world is to claim Jesus, but yet be completely unchanged. To claim to love Jesus, but not live for Jesus. To preach Jesus with our lips, but not with our lives. To talk about how his grace has so dramatically changed us, but have no grace for other people to talk about how Jesus was sent for us and yet have no desire to go out and tell other people about Jesus, to talk about the hope that we have in Jesus and yet not be marked by joy, to tell people to come to church but yet not be the church. If you want to confuse the outside world, remain unchanged. Because I'm not talking from like a legalistic standpoint or some like, overpowering, demanding standpoint, I'm simply talking about resurrection power, that if the same Spirit of God is in you that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, you therefore cannot remain unchanged. And so, we need to cry out for the Spirit to change us in the ways in which Scripture has revealed to us this morning that we're currently falling short to take those things and repent of those things, to be quick to confess, to ask for the Spirit to change us from the inside out and let it mark our lives. I don't believe anybody is neutral on this. I believe you are either adorning the message of Christ or damaging the message of Christ. There's no middle ground. Which one are you? Which one am I? One of the key moments of my life happened in a place I didn't expect it. I was held up in a moment uh, in Chicago, Illinois in, uh, at Wheaton College. And uh, I'm not sure if it's like a permanent exhibit or if it's like a temporary thing, but they had this Billy Graham Museum set up for a time. And uh, I remember I was walking through this Billy Graham Museum and if you've ever been there before, I know there's a few other museums that are like this. They actually have one room where Billy Graham it has pictures of him speaking to the largest crowds on each continent that ever gathered to hear him proclaim the name of Jesus. And they, they start you with like the smallest picture, right? You know, so you're looking at like Buenos Aires, Argentina, and there's 225,000 people there gathered to hear him proclaim the name of Christ. And then the next one is like New York City, and there's 250,000 people there to hear him proclaim Christ. And you just start like moving through the pictures, and then you like, your eyes finally move to like the last one. It's like, oh, that's a lot of people. <laughs> this was it. This is the picture. It looks like that moment off the Lion King, you know, off like Pride Rock, you know what I'm talking about? Like, like it's just a sea of people. 1.1 million people gathered in Seoul, South Korea at one point to hear him speak Jesus. 
Unbelievable. Here's what God prompted in me when I saw that picture. Like the question that he put before me that I wanna just put before you and let it mess with you like it messed with me. The question that he put before me, he said, what if I did that with your life? What if like all of a sudden God took me and gave me that type of platform? Like all of a sudden, like this is the image that came to my mind was like, I became like the Olympics. You know, I'm like on every channel, I'm on every TV. Like I've got a captive audience all over the world. Like every TV is fixed on me and I'm given the opportunity to speak Jesus. What if that, that was my platform? All of a sudden I had that. Here then was the question. What would be the side conversations in every living room and sports bar across the world when I'm on that screen speaking Jesus? Would the murmurs in the, the room be, oh man, I, I know that guy. Turn this off. This is garbage. He's fake. Or would it be, man, I, I don't agree with this. I don't even like it. I don't want to watch this. But I know that person. And I cannot deny the work of God in their lives. That stuck with me. What that student said about his parents stuck with me. It's obvious from Titus 2 what God desires of us in our lives. I pray that that would be true. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord God, merciful Father, I thank you that I don't sit today in this spot where I have to be perfect. And I do, I feel the eyes of people watching me and I know I've let people down. I know I've let you ultimately down. And so there's opportunity here for me to go out and, and to gather up those that I've wronged, offended, and to apologize, ask forgiveness, spouse, kids, friends, neighbors, coworkers, volunteers around the church, you name it, Lord. There's opportunities for me. There's opportunities for all of us to be marked by your word, to open your word this morning and like a mirror when it reflects back to us what's true and we see ourselves for the way that we really are and maybe we don't like what we see sometimes that we wouldn't from that run away and just ignore it, act like we didn't see it. But having looked into your word and invited you into our lives that you then would change us, move us to action. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit within whom we, we can change, we can, we can become a totally different person. That that spirit within us is holy, desires our holiness. And so would you, Holy Spirit, do an abundantly good work among your people here for your glory. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.